0: What was the culture around injuries and pitching sore, pitching hurt back in those days?
1: Yeah, don't go in the training room.
0: Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's interview series from Phenom to the Farm, where we're talking to former professional baseball players to reminisce about their playing days and what they learned in their journey from amateur ball to the professional ranks. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today we are joined by Bob Tewksbury, 13-year big leaguer who has dedicated his post-playing days to sports psychology and mental skills coaching. He's worked with a few organizations, most recently the Cubs, and now is a private consultant. We dive a lot into that aspect of the mental side of the game And if you've got more interest in that after the podcast, you can check out his book, 90% Mental, An All-Star Player Turned Mental Skills Coach Reveals the Hidden Game of Baseball. We also dive into a lot of good baseball stuff from Bob's era. Minor league lifestyle in the 1980s, very uh, very Bull Durham-esque, breaking in with a Yankees team that just had an incredible cast of characters and what it's like to face future Hall of Famers in an All-Star game. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. The Prospect Handbook is available for pre-order, and the BA College Preseason Top 25 just dropped. The BA Podcast feed is continuing to break down top 10 prospect lists and gearing up for college baseball season. For future guest info of this podcast, you can follow me on Twitter, at Kyle Bandujo. But for now, let's talk to Bob Tewksbury. Joining in for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm, he is a former big league pitcher and author of the book, 90% Mental, an All-Star Player and Mental Skills Coach Reveals the Hidden Game of Baseball. It's Bob Tewksbury. Bob, Tewks, thanks so much for joining.
1: Yeah, I like that, Tewks. Thanks, Kyle. No, it's... uh... I was excited to get your your email and inquiring about doing this, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: The mental side of baseball has been such an important part of this series. I thought you were the perfect person to bring on. Uh, I want to get right into it. Um, Tukes, growing up in New Hampshire, what was your athletic background? I've never been. I've heard New Hampshire is beautiful, heard great <laughs> things. I cannot imagine that weather lends itself to year-round baseball. <laughs> no. No, we played uh, –
1: I think we played 14 games in high school, maybe, and I remember vividly, um, you know, we had we had dugouts in high school that were uh, sunken dugouts, and I think the first two weeks of the season, we sat on benches outside the dugout because there was still ice frozen in the dugout. Um, but no, it was cold. I mean, cold baseball in New England is cold no matter what, but... You know very short season you know back then it was uh you know a short high school season and then a very short summer season it was you know Babe Ruth baseball and American Legion uh the AAU programs and and longer schedules and games and showcases hadn't uh hadn't been developed yet so it was short but yeah New Hampshire's a beautiful place um and, you know, there's been a few, I was going to say, it's not the hotbed of baseball development, but Carlton Fisk, Joe Lefay, Steve Balboni, Mike Flanagan, Rich Gale, uh, to name a few. Uh, I'm probably forgetting somebody, but, you know, those are some big leaguers that came from Mike LaVallier, uh, catcher with the Pirates. So, so there's a few that came out of there.
0: I am. Uh, I'm probably the youngest person in the world who habitually watches aerial America on the Smithsonian Channel, and the the New Hampshire episodes are just incredible. Oh, I mean, very scenic. Were but uh, were you a, a baseball only guy though in 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 high school?
1: No, I I uh, played multiple sports. I played soccer for a couple of years, soccer and basketball, and then it was just basketball and baseball. We didn't have a football team, or I'm sure I probably would have played football, but our high school didn't have that. So, um, no, I played two sports, and it was great, you know, back when the seasons didn't overlap and you could actually commit to, uh, you know, to playing three sports. It's definitely much more challenging now, but I'm a a big believer in the multi-sport stuff.
0: When did you, when did baseball become your main sport then? When did, when was it clear that that was going to be what you were going to play at the next level?
1: Um, probably, you know, and, and, well, obviously I think, you know, anyone that's got to the big leagues, uh, were all, you know, probably has always been better than their competition growing up and, um, and. You know, I think that that lended to, to moving through systems, whether it's high school or American Legion or even yeah. on to college. Um, but it wasn't until uh, I, I felt like I could get into the, you know, my dream was to sign a pro contract. But I really didn't know I could pitch in the big leagues until I remember where I was. I was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, at where the Yankees played an uh, A-ball of Florida State League and Doyle Alexander had come over in a trade with the Tigers and he was down on rehab and I watched him warm up and I watched him pitch and he didn't throw very hard but he was crafty kept the ball down I don't think he threw a ball above the knees in his whole warm up and and I said you know if he can pitch in the big leagues I can too and and I did And that was <laughs>
0: when you were playing for the team in Fort Lauderdale the A ball team
1: Exactly. Yeah. Nineteen eighty-two. So even I'm while sorry. you were
0: while you were in college before you got drafted, you you didn't you weren't sure you could pitch in the big leagues.
1: No, absolutely not. I was just hoping to get drafted. I had no idea if I could pitch in the big leagues.
0: What what led you to Rutgers, and then subsequently what what led you to transferring to Saint Leo?
1: Well, uh, you know. My high school principal played football. He was the captain of the Rutgers football team. And he had contacts with uh, Coach Coach Bolger, who at the time was still at Rutgers. Um, and, you know, I had a contact. I got some money. And, you know, I'd been recruited by a couple the University of Maine, University of Connecticut. Um, I'm not sure why I went down to New Jersey because... Uh, There were more people in my dorm than there were in the town I grew up in. I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire called Salisbury, New Hampshire, that had a blinking yellow light and a a corner market store. Um, So uh, I had no idea. But I I remember I, I went down there in 78, the fall of 78, really engaged and excited about playing college baseball. And I was really disappointed. We had a workout scheduled Um, but no one came because the Yankee Red Sox, uh, playoff game, uh, of 78 was on and people, you know, were watching that being from New Jersey and I wanted to play baseball and I, you know, I was really disappointed that no one, no one was on the field, but anyway, I was homesick. Um, bottom line is I got homesick. I was too far from home, didn't want to be in school, had thought about I should have just signed a contract. The Red Sox had um, wanted to sign me as a as a free agent player, and I turned him down. And um, so, yeah, so I left Rutgers and went home and worked at a birdseed factory uh, doing mail order birdseed. Mail for, order uh, birdseed. That is
0: the first time this phrase yeah. has appeared on this podcast
1: mail order birdseed, <laughs> yeah called duncraft uh i don't know what it's it was duncraft and they had a small business at the time that was mailing birdseed orders to out throughout the country and i would you know get orders ready and ship them out and the uh it just you talk about these moments in time that happen that give you pause and this is one of those moments where i was uh, it, was a, it was a one-way side street down the where the shipping was. Uh, the truck would receive, you know, the shippable goods, and I went to put an item on the conveyor to go down to the truck. And my high school baseball coach was parked next to the truck down below me. I don't know why he was out there. It's a one-way street going that way at the same time that I was putting this down putting the box down the the uh the the, i'm just paused because it's coming back to me so vividly and he kind of looked at me and just like what are you doing here (laughs) and i yeah and i that was probably in late november uh and then in january i enrolled at saint leo um I figured I didn't want to work in a birdseed, uh, store the rest of my life. So I went back to school and this time had an opportunity to go to Florida, um, which I know it's further away. A little better baseball weather in Florida though, than Jersey, a lot better baseball weather and baseball program. And yeah, it was a good experience. Um,
0: before you got drafted, had you given any thought to what you wanted to do in the real world? Had the, the field of, of psychology, had that crossed your mind at all?
1: No, not really, Kyle. I think I was, you know, a lot of my mentors were teachers. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the vice prin- or the principal was a uh, mentor of mine. My high school baseball coach was a math teacher. And then my high school uh, physical education teacher was a mentor those three guys really made an impact on me and I was probably going to go into the coaching teaching route like like they had um so that was my fallback plan
0: but you you get drafted you don't have to go into the fallback plan at what point <laughs> when when did you start to hear from scouts when did when was it a rea- like become a reality for you that you might get drafted
1: Uh, well, I had to, I had to play because I transferred, I had to play JV the first year at St. Leo and, um, I gave up 20 runs in three innings against Manatee Junior College. So, uh, I didn't think I would, I don't know if there, and there was a scout there, Murray Cook ended up being the GM of the Yankees, I believe. Um, he was there scouting me and, and. I don't know if I thought no one's ever going to come back after that, but, um, so I think it was probably, you know, toward the latter part of my junior year that I started to, you know, get some, some scouts showing up and, and not a lot. I mean, I I didn't throw hard, but I, you know, I always had command and I had good size and, so it was probably toward the latter part of my junior season.
0: Well, the Yankees pop you in the 19th round. You're part of a great Yankees draft class. They draft a guy who who should be a Hall of Famer, in my opinion, and, and Fred McGriff. They draft a Hall mm, of Famer.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: they draft an actual Hall of Famer, just not in baseball. Uh, they draft, yeah. <laughs> they draft uh, Steinbrenner makes a, a big deal about signing John Elway. Does the 19th rounder also get to meet George Steinbrenner at signing?
1: Uh, no, no. I did not get to meet George, but I did get a magnum of champagne after my first Major League win that he did not give me. It was personally, it was from him, but it was in my locker. Uh, and I still have that bottle. It's still unopened. Um, it's upstairs. But yeah, Fred, I'm with you. Crime Dog should be in the Hall of Fame, hands down. And uh,
0: it's unbelievable to think that he's not. We're at the point in the year right now where anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I've just been firing off Hall of Fame takes on Twitter because we're we're in the the stage of Mm. the year where people are posting their ballots and I'm just getting mad about who's not in. Um, But how much does a 19th round pick get as a signing bonus in 1981? Uh, $7,500, $7,500. I mean, that, that goes farther in 1981 than it does now, but I I can't, (laughs) I can't imagine you felt like you were rich.
1: No, after taxes, you know, it was, uh, not a lot of money, but Hey, I was in the dance. I had a chance. Um, yeah. And you know, I went to the New York Penn league, which is now, you know, been eliminated and which is sad played at Demansky field, made I think $500 a month or something and but I was but I was in the
0: dance which was all I really wanted. I was happy as heck. So how much did of an idea did you have about what life in the minor leagues was like or what your path to the big leagues looked like? You'd already said that you weren't you weren't even sure that you could pitch in the big leagues. Did you have any sort of idea of if I do this I can get there? Um,
1: not until, you know, the the next year. The first year in Oneonta, I I had a good season, but you know, I was just happy to be there. You know, a lot of these kids, I Mike Palarulo was on that team, Scott Bradley, you know, they came from big programs. Pags came from uh University of Miami and Scotty came from the University of North Carolina. Um, you know, they were used to playing in, you know, much bigger capacities and probably better facilities. I didn't know better. I was totally happy to be in Oneonta with no expectations. I was playing baseball, um, but my path, you know, I think, started to take shape after, you know, I was Yankee pitcher of the of the year in '82. I won 16 games. Uh, no, I won I won 15 games, but I had 16. I
0: can't remember right now. You probably have a you won, there. You had. You won. You won 15 games. You had a sub two ERA for Class A Fort Lauderdale.
1: Yeah, and I think I had 13 complete games, pitched 188 innings. Um, that would never happen
0: now. I, so, I had noted that you were you averaged seven and a half innings per start, which I think would make a farm director like die if <laughs> if they, would, if they, they heard one of their prospects now. did that.
1: But. Yeah. And I I mean, I ended up having elbow surgery that summer and then years later, shoulder surgery. And I don't know if that was a cumulative effect of that. But what I do know is that, you know, back then you, you played your way out of the league and I felt like I earned my way to double A. So every year my goal was to pitch well enough to get to the next level. Um, And you know, I got stuck in AA for a few years, but then the AAA. A, I only pitched, you know, 44 innings before I got the, you know, put on the roster and invited to spring training. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I really didn't know any better. I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the late nights. I
0: loved the bus rides. I loved going out to the ballpark every day. You're doing my job for me because I have to ask what like pre-Bull Durham minor league life was like. It's the, you know, everyone fell in love with the minor leagues in 1989 when Bull Durham came out. Ah. You're right there kind of in that era. What was, you know, what was your lodging like? What was the living situation? Because we think about now you know, minor leaguers cramming into to small apartments and, and stuff like that. There's There's been a big, I mean, if, you know, you look at one of our, our more recent episodes with Ty Kelly, we did a lot about that. But what was, you know, what was that like in 1982,
1: 1983? Well, we, we were, uh, I think me and four other guys had a, an apartment on Cherry Street in Oneonta. Um, You know, then it was like, you know, who's going to, who's paying the rent? you know, where's the money coming from? And, you know, I, Stan Williams was in that. Stan Williams Jr.'s dad pitched with the Yankees. Great guy. He went to SC and he was well more worldly than me and, you know, living in LA. And, um, so I, I was just a huckleberry from New Hampshire. Um, so, you know, whatever money we made went to rent or the cable or food. Um, there was no saving money at all. But, you know, the, the bus rides uh, were, were memorable. I remember hitting a deer in upstate New York, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, you know, Fort Lauderdale was, it was just hot and sticky. Double A was the, you know, A ball, you know, Fort Lauderdale, the travel wasn't bad and stadiums were good. Uh, double-A when we went to Nashville was probably the eye-opener because you had started to have guys coming down from triple-A that were older and disgruntled. Uh, Buck Showalter was a teammate of mine in Nashville. Uh, He was older. He wasn't disgruntled. I think he knew that he was not going to get to the big leagues as a player. I was going to ask, is he
0: always grumpy?
1: Yeah, he's always been intense. Yeah, he's uh, but he's really funny. I think he's got a really rough exterior, but when you sit down with him, he's pretty funny. Um, but but in double A, we had we had a bus with sleeper uh, beds in the back, card table, and the bus driver's name was Snuffy, and Snuffy was uh, kind of a heavy set guy with a, a you know heavy acne, and but a great guy. And we he and I used to he was a uh, part-time record producer um, you know being in Nashville, I don't know what part-time meant but but we used to sit up in the front and tell stories and listen to you know music up front while guys in the back were playing cards. We had one player that used to read penthouse Forum out loud on the back of the bus uh, which which disgruntled the the Christian athletes on the team. Uh, Hoyt Wilhelm was the pitching coach. And so the, the bucks were reserved for the catcher and starting pitcher the next day. One of our left-handed pitchers had a few too many beers and the beers back then were bought by the team for the bus ride on the way home. Um, and so, uh, pitcher went in the back and Hoyt Wilhelm heard about it. Now Hoyt's a hall of famer. So Hoyt hears about it. Knuckleballer. Yeah. He goes back to the back of the bus, pulls the guy out of the bunk. You know, the guy falls from the top bunk down to the bottom of the bunk, <laughs> tells him to get the hell out of there, that he doesn't deserve to be there. Um, Matt Keogh was uh, down learning the knuckleball from Hoyt, who had been a starter with Oakland and then the you know the Yankees, but he was getting banged around a little bit. So Keo, he was pretty cool, but you know he was a big league guy. He was on that starting staff that all pitched, you know, incredible amount of innings for Oakland uh, back in the day. And um, uh, so some guys didn't like him, so they painted him in the bathroom of the bus. You know, they put pennies under the door. So I didn't know what this was, but some guys did so they basically lodged him into the bathroom and he couldn't get out so he was screaming let me out let me out and then finally you heard this big thump and then a primal scream (laughs) and what he had he had kind of braced himself with his legs up against the sink and when he kicked the door he reverberated back and his head hit the window and he cut his cut the back of his head so he came screaming out of, the, uh, out of the bus with that. So, yeah, AA was those, – those bus rides were interesting. Running out of gas. You heard me. Running out of gas on the highway two hours outside of Jacksonville on the way back to Nashville.
0: Uh, no cell phones either.
1: No cell phones. We had a game the next day. So I pitched that night um i think i pitched really well we're on the bus you know we had beer it's you know it's it's florida it's uh jacksonville in the summer it's hot humid the bus runs out of gas run the side of the road no ac um no food no nothing we have to i don't know how the guy must have radioed in for somebody they had to you know took hours Uh, we finally got going again Got back to Nashville, I think, at 6.30 for a 7.05 game. Uh, They delayed the game a little bit, but all the wet stuff from the the previous game was under the bus, hadn't been washed, smelled. So people were wearing some of their stuff that they had from the day before or just barring. It was crazy. Um, Yeah, a lot of pizza you know, between games and doubleheaders. Uh, I pitched a game in Reading one time, and um, we scored like six runs in the first game. I'm pitching the second game, and between games we had Domino's Pizza, and I was pissed because I'm like, these guys aren't going to score any runs. They're all, they're all f- full of pizza. Uh, sure enough, we get shut out. And um, so anyway, yeah, lots of... Uh, I, and I think that, you know... The minor leagues are really, really tough, but when you look back at it, it's kind of a, a rite of passage that, you know, you really have to love baseball to get through it, and you really have to be good to move through it, uh, and not everyone does that.
0: Kind of on that adage, though, and in, in with the work you've done, you know, post-career with, with mental skills and a, a little bit into the conversation we had before we started recording about the, the importance of your mental health and feeling good. Do you, do you think that there is, because it's uh, one of the arguments against, you know, that about paying minor leaguers more is, oh, well, you know, if they really love it they should, you know, they, they should be fine with that money or who cares if they're living in these cramped apartments because it builds character, it builds whatever. Do you think there's a little bit of credence to that and that it, it, that stuff is maybe good for character building or is there a halfway point of, you know, it, it would be better for baseball or better for these guys if they were actually treated a little bit better?
1: Uh... Yeah, you know, I mean that's a great question and not one that's easily answered. I think that you know, the bottom line is the way that it is the way that it is now. Uh I had to borrow money as a minor leaguer. Um I borrowed money from my high school catcher Tim Hoyt. I call him Ofer. Uh not that he was Ofer for four cuz he could really hit. I don't know why we call him Ofer, but his name was Ofer. Um and I paid him he goes look and I think it was like $5,000. It was a lot of money. And he goes, look, just pay me back, you know, when you get your f- first check, and I, uh, which I did. So I was fortunate to do that. Um, so I think that, you know, players, because the I worked, you know, I worked an off-season job. I, I worked, I sold shoes at, at a sporting goods store. Actually, I worked in the sporting goods store that sold... You know, guns, ammunition, shoes. uh, You know, sneakers, sweaters. I actually sold a pair of shoes to Og Mandino, who wrote uh, the greatest salesman in the world. He was an author of, you know, positive psychology books. And I, he was in the store visiting his granddaughter and happened to ask him, you know, so what do you do? He goes, Oh, I'm an author. What do you write? He goes, Well, I write inspirational books. And I said, oh, I I like Norman Vincent Peale. And he goes, oh, I know Norman. (laughs) I I said, who are you? And he told me, I didn't know who the heck he was. So then I looked later up and I was like, I mean, I looked him up and I was like, damn, I just saw the guy that wrote The Greatest Salesman in the World. But um, anyway, uh, back to your question. Uh, You know, the... The players do need more money because there's a lot of players that end up not playing because of the finances. Um, you know, they might have a family. Uh, they didn't get a draft, you know, a bonus. You know, the bonus babies have it much differently than the other players. So, and you think about the, if you were paid by the hour in baseball for what you did, um, and I look, I understand that, okay, a, you know, people listening may say, well, you know, John Lester's making $20 million a year. He's making, you know, X amount per hour. That's not the point. The point is in the minor leagues, um, you have to pay your rent, your expenses, and all that stuff, and you don't make enough to, to meet that. And I think that players should be uh, given a little bit more compensation to help offset those expenses in the minor
0: leagues for sure. It's one of the, and we'll, you know, we'll see if it happens. It's supposed to be one of the silver linings to cutting out, you know, 42 uh, minor league franchises or however, you know, it came out. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, well see.
1: I, and Colin, I want, well, I want to talk about what you said too, about some type of, um, you know, uh, I forget the word you use, but it was about earning your stripes, so to speak, about part of the, part of the struggle. Um, and I think that that's true. It's true in anything. You know, I think that people that take internships or, you know, start out at the bottom of the rung, you know, part of it is you have to pay your dues. And if you're a minor leaguer that pay your dues and, and you have a big league career, you, you know, you can be financially secure for, your, for the rest of your life. But that doesn't happen to everybody. And, um, and again, you know, a very small percentage of people playing in the minor leagues make it to the big leagues. And, and I don't think we're talking about giving them all $100,000 a year to play minor league baseball. I think we're talking about, you know, a few thousand dollars more a year to help just ease the pain a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think um I think how Ty Kelly put it in in that episode a couple weeks ago was that they're hoping that baseball will treat it like a career, like it is a job and not just mm. a little part time kind of freelance thing because it, it's it. It's tough for, for guys to feel like employees, but it's it, very interesting to hear how that you know the the how that's been a, a thing for minor leaguers for you know forty years now. Um, yeah, long time. Um, something else I wanna I, I wanna ask you about as far as and in, in you kind of you hit on it a little bit um, that you you went through some injuries in the minor leagues. You've had elbow surgery. You had shoulder problems. What was the culture around injuries and pitching sore, pitching hurt back in those days?
1: Yeah, don't go in the training room. <laughs> Basically, yeah, it was um, a lot of people had injuries that they never talked about because, you know, they didn't want they didn't want the team to know because they felt that if the team knows and I don't play, I'm going to lose my spot, and that the fear of that was very prominent. Back then, um, you know, I remember taking um, butis. I think it was called butazolidine, which was horse uh, anti-inflammatory. <laughs> you know, they were giving this stuff out back then um, to deal with inflammation. And um, so, yeah, you didn't say anything, and and that was the culture. When I got to New York, you know, I was a rookie, and you you know. I think we talked about this earlier too, where you go into a veteran clubhouse and you're the rookie and you can't do anything, say anything, don't go in the training room because you're like, you know, what are you doing in here, rookie? You know, get your ass out of here. You don't need to be in here or all that stuff. And it creates a, you know, fear that, you know, if you're really hurt and I know that I had that in New York and every day that I went to the ballpark in New York, you know, after the first month, you know, I played, I pitched well early, but when I started the struggle, it was, it was not a, a good feeling. I actually, when I get sent down to triple A the first time, I was like, oh, just, oh, I know I can relax, you know. Um, but thankfully, you know, baseball has evolved where they encourage Uh, most teams encourage people to come into the training room to stay on top of injuries. And I mean, so much of the game has changed in every aspect since 1986, but uh, yeah, you know, if you're hurt, don't go in the training room, don't tell anybody, suck it up and go play.
0: Well, let's talk about 86 because after almost five full years in the minors, you've kept runs off the board, you know, wherever you've gone What was spring training 86 like compared to previous years?
1: Mm. Yeah, well, it was great because, you know, I drove my two-tone brown Mercury Zephyr 1978 vintage two-tone brown Mercury Zephyr, I might add, into the parking lot at Fort Lauderdale Stadium where Henderson Griffey Sr., Dave Winfield, uh, Ron Guidry all had Mercedes and (laughs) I went, I went strolling in, in that car. I'm surprised the, the guy at the gate let me in. Uh, but so that was, but it was great. I, um, I was confident coming off a really solid six weeks in AAA. Um, uh, I, and that's really where my mental game started to, uh, you know at least in the in the the aspect of imagery started to blossom because going back to norman vincent peel again um, you know he said if you can see it and believe it you can achieve it and so i created this vision in my mind of walking into pinella's office uh at the end of spring training and having him tell me i made the team that was my that was my vision uh And it was so powerful that, you know, I could see it, I could feel it, I could just be there. I can be there right now. And all of spring training, uh, the night before I pitched, I would, you know, we had Walkmans back then, but I would take my Walkman, go out to the beach. We were on Pompano Beach, and um, or I, I was on Pompano Beach at the hotel, and I would listen to my Walkman, and I would visualize myself pitching the next day's game and i pitched 20 scoreless innings in spring training uh made the team and i was number 75 and about a week before spring training ended i got a tap on the shoulder and the clubhouse guy said hey lou wants to see you and i went into the office and he told me i made the team just like i had imagined um all winter long so that's the my first, you know. And I had practiced imagery a little bit in high school, but that's where it was really, really powerful. But you know, it was great. I was making big league meal money. I was making more money in spring training than I made during the season the year before. Um, you know, I get a standing ovation. My uh, one of my one of my last games at the ballpark. Uh, it was great. It was great. Loved it.
0: When you you know you find out you're going to the big leagues, and then you find out you're going to be making you're going to be making a start. You you you're you're going into the rotation. Your debut was as a starter. How mm-hmm. do you game plan for you? Just you were just talking about the visual, visualization of of making the team. How do you then transfer that visualization to your start? How do you game plan? taking into account just the nerves of, of about to be able to face big league hitters.
1: Yeah, I wasn't you know what I, I was ready. I was against the Brewers April eleventh, um, at the stadium and I was ready. I I had, had a solid spring. I was confident, getting a lot of positive press. Um yeah, I pitched seven and a third. I just did the same thing. I visualized the night before I did my, followed my routine. I made my pitches and, you know, I mean, it was a long time ago. I'm sure I was, had butterflies and was nervous, but the, um, but I was ready. I, you know, it's something that was probably, you know, uh, definitely a career highlight looking back at it and, and, you know, but it was after that, that things started to get, you know after i'd been there for a little bit and started the struggle and then the distractions and the noise of the media and worried about my spot on the roster and then i my shoulder started to get sore and didn't say anything and
0: you know that's when life became really hard in new york you played in you played in you opened in new york you played in chicago you played in st louis you played in san diego texas minnesota what from a mental like a mental fatigue factor. Can you put a, can you put a number on what the New York media and and just the environment, that pressure cooker, how much harder that makes doing your job?
1: Oh, you can't compare it. Um, it's not even comparable to anything else. It it would be like, you know, I, I don't even know how to make a comparison to it. Uh, um, you know, you you you, you know, I go to Chicago after that, I get traded for Steve Trout and you know, not a lot of expectations. They were happy to get rid of him, but I was I was still hurt and got sent down and um so no one really talked to me. I wasn't part of the you know, I was just an afterthought. But then in St. Louis, you know, I started to have success and there was a couple of beat writers and the fans were nice and it was just a you know, a very great place to play, no pressure. And then uh, from there, I went to uh, Texas, and that was a similar thing. You know, if it was football, it may have been different, but it was baseball. And then San Diego is, you know, we had a great team, but again, not a lot of media. And then Minnesota was very low-key. So, you know, I started at the, you know, it would be like, I guess, Mount Everest compared to Kersarge Mountain. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I guess that would be. It.
0: Well, that that clubhouse you were in as a rookie in your in your time in New York had just looking at the baseball reference page is crazy. It had Don Mattingly, Ricky Henderson, Willie Randolph, Dave Winfield, Dave Rigetti, Ron Guidry, Tommy John. That's just a ton of baseball clout. Uh, mm-hmm. Plus Lou Pinella managing. How as a rookie, how do you go fitting into a clubhouse like that? Was there a vet you could lean on? Anyone you felt comfortable? You know, especially in the pitching staff, kind of picking their brain.
1: Yeah, Joe Necro was, bless his soul, and then Phil just passed away too, but Joe was the guy, he kind of took me under his wing, he was a veteran, Um, he used to make fun of my name, he'd go, you know, I think I'm going to paint my car Tewksbury, it sounds like a color, Uh, and he was... He's not wrong. No, he was, (laughs) but he was great, Um, but, you know, Rigetti was really hard on me, he uh, he and Bob Shirley, they didn't talk to me. It was kind of like, you know, really, really old school um, and and difficult. Um, but Winfield was really nice to me. He gave me a suit that I had to have altered, but it was a, a you know, he's 6'6", six, six, I'm 6'4", six, you know, he's 250. I was probably 200 at the time, but so in a nice Italian suit that I still have, I probably haven't worn it. Um, but, and then, uh, Ken Griffey Sr. was really nice to me. Um, Bobby Meacham, Willie Randolph, Peg Lurillo was on that team. Of course, we had played together in the minor league. So, uh, but yeah, there was definite veteran old school presence. And, and then playing for Lou was, you know, he didn't like pitchers to begin with. And, um, you know, he loved me when I had 20 scoreless innings. And then after my first major league win but the next start i pitch in cleveland i pitch seven innings i believe give up 10 hits five runs i might have walked one and uh, he came up to me the next day and he said you know you're not going to stay in the big leagues long if you keep giving up that many hits and i was like are you me (laughs) i just pitched seven innings so, but I got payback because I pitched really good against the really well against the Reds when I was with the uh, the Cardinals. So uh, that was that was fun payback. But yeah, Lou uh, was really tough to play for.
0: I didn't realize Lou had managed uh, both Griffey's either. Oh right, think about yeah, that.
1: yeah, you're right.
0: Um, was there uh, was there any pressure to grow a mustache in that clubhouse? <laughs> no, everyone. I don't think
1: I could have yeah everyone had one i tell you playing with mattingly was great too and even now you know over the years of traveling around with different teams to see him and um uh, you know he was very complimentary about you know i i think he was with i shut out the yankees in at uh arlington stadium in 95 and he came up to me the next day and he goes you know i'm really happy for you i think you know, I think you got a raw deal with with us in meaning in New York, and uh, just awesome. And I'm so happy that he's had the success he's had. He's a, he's a really good man.
0: So um, you mentioned you get dealt to Chicago. What was the what's the experience of being through being in, involved in a mid season trade?
1: Well, I had just got sent down to Columbus, and it was the All Star break. So my girlfriend, now my wife. Um, she was visiting me in New York and I'm like, well, I guess we're going to Cleveland uh, or to Chicago. So she said, I'll go with you. So it's a lot better than going
0: to Cleveland. No offense to Cleveland.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, but so she was with me. We were, we were in the, um, actually I got sent down. We were in the Catskills. We were at a resort and the bellman told me that I get traded, um, that I get traded to Chicago. And it was from there that we, she was supposed to fly home and go to work. And she said, I'm going to Chicago. Um, so it was odd, but I was relieved at one point to get out of, the, out of New York. Um, but unfortunately for me, going to Chicago wasn't much better um, because of my health status. But yeah, it, it felt good to get out of New York. I think everyone wants that because, you know, back then you just, they, well, even now still to the extent that they develop homegrown players other than, well, they had Pettit and Rivera and Jeter and Posada, but Bernie Williams, you know, but um, that was uh, an outlier development years. Um, But I think that, you know, the Yankee farm system was great, great coaching, first-class facilities, um, you know, I think that I really benefited from from that player development side of the Yankees. It was just you know getting the opportunity to pitch for the big league team was really hard.
0: Well, you go to you get traded to Chicago and then you wind up in St. Louis, and at that point you've kind of you've shuffled between AAA and the show for a while. What made St. Louis the place where things clicked? Was it all was it all health related? Was it getting comfortable in the big leagues? Kind of what goes into going from. A fringe guy to a, a steady you know and in certain years stellar major leaguer
1: well it wasn't that easy because um you know the Cardinals signed me as a free agent i went to spring training in 89 uh at that point laura and i just got married and i was coming off of major shoulder surgery that prior summer um and i thought i, I remember she came down i was sitting on a Bench one of the fields in the minor leagues, and I said I'll probably be home in a week. We had just bought a house. Um, I said my shoulders killing me, and you know she said, "Well, I'll just see how it plays out." And then Mike Jorgensen was the manager of the Louisville team, and um, you know he goes, "Look, we're going to keep you. Uh, you're going to pitch." And so I did that, and and I pitched, and I won, and I won, and I won, and um and whitey's they went to a four-man rotation i whitey didn't call me up because he didn't think that i had big league stuff i was you know i had a below average fastball and so he didn't call me up for the long for the longest time and then i got called up in september now excuse me that was 89 so i got so i was in louisville i won i got called up in september i pitched my first big league um uh nationally no first big league shutout i think was in in montreal I go to spring training in 1990 there's a lockout i'm on the team at the beginning of the year then when the rosters were expanded then the rosters shrunk back i got sent back triple a and i won and that's when um whitey went to a four-man rotation and didn't bring me up and i'm like this is crazy you know I'm going to go overseas, I'm going to do something, I'm 20, I'm 30 years old, and um, in AAA, and so what changed was, probably it's something that every player hopes happens to them, is that, you know, you just want somebody to come and say, here's your chance, if you do well, you're going to be around, if you don't, well, if you don't, then... You know, see you later. Because, again, it goes back to the struggle in the minor leagues. How long do you want to pursue this dream before you just say, you know, I've got a life to live? Well, that happened. The, Ted Simmons, they called me up. Ted Simmons, uh, who I'm glad in the Hall of Fame, um, and said, you know, you're going to get the ball on Friday against Montreal. Uh, if you do well, you get another start. <laughs> If he don't do well, uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen. And I said, you know, at first I was like, geez, that's a little direct, isn't it? But then I felt relief and a sense of control. Um, And I said, okay, great. So I prepared for that game and back to the imagery and and I pitched – seven and a third innings against the um i think it was the expos um i gave up we were winning two to nothing i think i gave up three runs in the sixth but then shut them down and we scored and i said well i pitched well that game i'll get the ball again in five days and i pitched well again and i never went back to the minor
0: leagues you begin this tenure in St. Louis where you're, you start becoming known around the big leagues. I, I want to talk about throwing strikes, which is, mm. which is easier said than done. Uh, mm. it, is, it is very easy, especially for coaches, to yell, throw strikes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Your walk rate was low your entire career, historically low. What about your strategy on the hill led to that? And what mentally do you attribute to being able to replicate that low rock walk rate your entire career? Like how much a strategy of how you went about going at hitters and how much was, was mental or mechanical?
1: Well, I mean, there's – so the mental part of this is to not be afraid of contact. Uh, I wanted them to hit it. Um, so you have to have that mindset, number one. And number two, there's a difference between control and command. Uh, You know, control is pitching in the strike zone, and that's good, but those pitches get hit. Uh, Command is the ability to put the ball where you want to so that the hitter hits your pitch. And I practice that. I practice throwing to a target all the time when I trained in the winter, when I played catch, when I had my bullpens. Um, I had a very systematic routine when I threw my bullpens. That was exactly the same all the time. That routine was my you know, the same thing I did on the side and my side days. Um, uh, and then, you know, the ability to the biggest thing is the ability to not be afraid of contact. You know, you get eight people behind you. Uh, let them let them hit it. <laughs> so. Um, and certainly, you know, I mean, even, and I, you know, I I gave up a lot of hits, but you'll notice I didn't give up a lot of home runs and, um, you know, those, a lot of those balls that they hit turn into outs. And so, and then, you know, consistent delivery, you know, the ability to repeat your delivery and make mechanical adjustments from pitch to pitch. I was able to do that because I knew my mechanics so well and they were so simple. So, uh, yeah, it was a combination of a lot of things, but I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, uh, I'm known as one of the best control pitchers in baseball history, at least in the modern ball era. uh, And that's pretty cool.
0: Once you're established in St. Louis, you've got a, you know, you you run off. I think a string of four or five years in a row with a sub four ERA, a couple of those with a sub three ERA. What is the what's the year to year start to start like? Once you've hit, you know, you're not once you you you've hit your physical peak essentially um you're you're an established veteran what are what are the improvements that you you take from start to start or year to year what's your goal how do you get better as a big leaguer once you've made it and you're established
1: well for me Kyle it was the fact that you know after I had three years of service I couldn't get sent down anymore um that was a big relief I think you know part of the the you know, 50% of the players who play one year in the big leagues don't play a full second year. Um, So there's a lot of guys that go up and down. And, you know, coaches told me the hard part about the big leagues isn't getting there, it's staying there, and they're right. So after I had three years of service in, I was relieved that I could have a bad game and I wasn't going to get sent down. Uh, That freed me up to perform better. And then, you know, those in 91, 92, 93, even 94, although, you know, I had a high ERA, it was, that's when the strike happened. And I think I would have, it would have been high fours, but I would have won 15, 16 games again. Um, so then it becomes really fun. You know, you, you, you are doing something you love. Uh, you feel like you're able to, be part of the peer group that you have respect of other players in the league, uh, respect of the umpires, uh, appreciation by the fans and you're, and you're getting paid to do it. Um, you know, I, I never really played for the contract. I certainly it was a, I wanted it as a byproduct of my success, but it's not what drove me. What drove me was to go out and, and pitch and compete, uh, so those were really fun. When you get to that point in your career where you know that there's nothing that can happen to you in the game um, or in the course of a, a month or half a season or a season, that's going to really deter you from, uh, from the bigger picture of being a successful big leaguer.
0: Well, you get all the way to the 1992 All-Star game. So you go from guy bouncing between AAA and the Bigs a couple years prior to All Star. Can you walk me through your uh, your outing? I, I actually I, I want a hat tip. I think I read an article in, in whatever the Saint the main magazine of or the main paper of St. Louis is. The Dispatch. Uh, the Dispatch. Yeah, I read an interview you did about essentially. And, and tying this into the mental side of baseball, but how your 1992 All-Star game was really, it was, it was a good example of the mental side of baseball and really a tale of two innings.
1: Yeah, and I think that was one of the hardest parts to talk about in the book um, was to be really reveal what was going on because I think oftentimes athletes of all sports have two narratives. One's the the internal narrative that, you say to yourself what on what really happened and then there's the external narrative you tell your friends in media that and those two things don't match um so yeah i make the team i've got a sub two era um i glavin started get knocked around uh i remember thinking whew, uh, at least you know i can't do any worse than that <laughs> um And, which is probably a bad seed to plant, but, uh, but I pitched an inning. I think I throw nine pitches to Ripken, Joe Carter, and McGuire, I think. Um, Three decent
0: baseball players.
1: Not bad. Yeah. And, uh, so I come in, I'm like, oh, it's over. You know, I pitched a clean inning and then Bobby Cox, who called me Tom two nights before at the gala. Uh, maybe he thought I was Tom Pagnozzi, but nonetheless, he called me Tom, comes down and he goes, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I'm fine. He goes, good. You get another inning. And I was like, are you shitting me? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you want me to go back out there now? I just pitched a scoreless inning. I'm done. You know, but that's my internal narrative. I'm like, oh shit, are you kidding me? Um, so I go, okay. And so... I remember thinking, all right, I've got to turn this around to go back out to the mound. I mean, no one that if you don't start the game, no one pitches two innings in the middle of the All-Star game, you know. Um so I had taken myself out of the game basically. So I I get back out there, I think I get the first guy out or maybe I don't, I don't know. I get a guy on second and one, Griffey hits a double. I got a guy on second and one out. I have a guy on third and two outs. And then I don't get out of the inning, I believe. And, um, you know, it went from, okay, I can just get out of this with one run to I can't believe this is happening. Why did they send me back out here? Uh, You know, I felt like just totally lost. Um, And, uh, yeah, it was definitely a a tale of two, two, two two performances but that's what and I was an all-star you know and I just think that I wanted to you know those are feelings that players have in competition I had a lot of people that have read my book relievers big league relievers that said you know I've had that feeling where I pitch an inning and I think I'm done and I have to go back out there and I don't do well and so it's a whole thing of you know keeping your your fire and your belly going until you're totally until they tell you they're definitely not pitching anymore, you know? Tough lesson learned.
0: Well, Compared to what you know now, with years of now school, mental skills work under your belt, where were you at with your understanding of the mental side of baseball by the time you got into 30s? Like, in retrospect, did you have a lot of room for improvement? Did you have a pretty good grasp on it?
1: Uh, well, I I think that I had a decent grasp on it, but this is when... You know, when I, through my struggles early in my career, I definitely was looking for something. Uh, I, you know, I would go to the bookstores and be in the self-help section or a psychology section and, you know, read Harvey Dorfman's, you know, books and, you know, was definitely looking for something. So I'm not surprised that I ended up in this field. Um, what I do know was, you know, I definitely was doing a lot of imagery and, what i share with athletes now is what i practiced you know i call that little voice in our head that negative voice the little man and you know that voice is in there all the time and it says don't walk this guy don't screw up you know whatever it is and so i had those thoughts on the mound but what i learned to do was to to work around them uh, to pitch in spite of them and what i how I, what I did was I would have that thought, I would delete it. I would, I would bang my left leg with my glove, you know, gloves on my left hand. I would breathe or I would swipe the pitching rubber. Um, then I would step off and I would, uh, take a breath. And then I would, I call it an anchor statement and, you know, affirmation, anchor statement, whatever. But, my anchor statement was just like on the side. And to me, just like on the side is free and easy, under control, no stress. You know, I mean, I could put the ball wherever I wanted to with ease and, and repeatability. And uh, and so I say just like on the side. And then I would get back on the mound and try to replicate that pitch. And, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, I, I didn't walk people, but it wasn't because I wasn't behind in the count. You know, I did get behind in the count, but what I was able to do is to regain that count by controlling my thoughts. Um, So that definitely improved. They did a lot of journaling um, of my outings. I kept track of my stats before there were, you know, analytics. I kept track of, uh, maybe there were analytics, but I kept my own first pitch strikes, number of pitches thrown. Uh, if I threw a first pitch strike, how many times I got to hit her out? Um, you know, I broke down the, you know, what my run percentage was that I gave up in the first inning and how that affected my ERA. You know, I was just a student of the game in all facets. Um, and I think that was the separator. That's why at 85, 86 miles an hour, I had a long big league career.
0: Something else I need to know the the mental side of or where your mind was at was you had mentioned that um you were you were pitching in the year that ended up being the strike year it was in your mm-hmm. free agency year um you know it looks like we might be staring at a labor fight coming up here real soon where is where's your head at where are your teammates heads at where's the clubhouse at in a year where you don't you know you might you, you might not think you're gonna finish the year was was. Was that reality or was that the possibility of the World Series being cancelled on anyone's mind?
1: No, you know, Kyle, that's you know, I mean this is you know, definitely a long time ago and and uh so there's a few things I'd like to say about that. One was that, you know, we never thought during during the eighties and nineties work stoppages and conflicts were common with baseball there was a lockout in 1990 there was a strike short strike in 82 there was or 81 you know there's always been something and um so it was not unexpected and i think that the players thought was that the later we go into the year uh the more that we will the owners won't want to lose the world series because of the revenue so if we go out now this will get them to the table but what we didn't know is that the owners had colluded and had, you know, planned on replacement players, scab players to come in in our place and really had no intention of they felt like canceling the World Series. Uh you know, they would reap that money back tenfold if they could control salaries or break the union. So it was really a sad dark time. Uh and in baseball, and it was bad timing for me because I was coming off of three of my best seasons with my highest earning capacity ahead of me. Um, But, you know, uh, I, I think that what I want players, if, you know, former players, present players, to understand that a lot of guys post, you know, 1995, played full careers where salaries skyrocketed and uh, you know contracts went to the hundred millions um, and I hope that they understand where that came from and how that happened because they had no threat of a work stoppage for their whole careers and um, and I think players now should rightfully be concerned about where this is going to go, and I and I think that you know it's scary to think you know coming off of of, of COVID and the lost revenues uh, of of twenty twenty, and then you know probably significant losses in twenty twenty one that you know, and then the. the the negotiations of safety with regard to COVID and the amount of games played that I'm really concerned and I would not be surprised if there was a major work stoppage come, you know, the end of, uh, 2021.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a, I mean, I, needless to say, there's a lot of uncertainty, quote unquote, uncertain times right now, but it is, um, (laughs) (laughs) that's,
1: that's a word of, uh, yeah. Uncertainty and well, this will pass. But, you know, I, I one thing I will say, though, about the game, and I've been in the game 39 years and it's my first year not going into a spring training with a team uh, since I was 20, which is hard to believe. But I will say that I don't like the game now. I don't like the product. Uh, it's boring. Um I don't like instant replay. I know that it has some benefit, but I think that uh, the game has been neutered. And I think that uh, the reason I don't like instant replay is because I think one of the reasons that everyone said to play athletics was because you learn life lessons. You learn discipline, you learn teamwork, you learn cooperation, um, and you learn that things aren't fair all the time and you have to deal with it and the instant replay makes things fair all the time and i just feel like you know so so there's no lessons to be learned about well that's unfortunate how are you going to deal with it it's well that's all right well we'll turn it over so now everything's fair um and you know the launch angles and spin rates have taken away you know the base running and uh, and fielding and I don't even know why they give out gold gloves now because the ball's not put in play enough to uh, to distinguish who's a good fielder or not. Um, and I I probably sound like a really long in the tooth veteran baseball player. I realize, but
0: if you want to talk about a time where the game was unquestionably very fun, uh, I actually. You know, as you get into the latter part of your career, the Rangers, the Padres, my beloved Minnesota Twins, guys start getting bigger. Balls start going (laughs) farther. You're still the same kind of pitcher. You said yourself, 85, 86. Is there any sort of conscious fear about aging out of your prime at the same time that that guys are hitting the weights a little bit?
1: Yeah, hitting the weights. uh, um, No, you know, I just felt like, you know, I when I broke in with the Yankees in eighty six, strength and conditioning was just starting to get into baseball. We had a we had one of the first and Jeff Mangold and uh but it you know, traditionally it was run, you know, do your shoulder program and not a lot of heavy weights. So the people that were doing that, I was you know, like, okay, well that's their prerogative and we heard rumors of players doing you know, juicing up, but I was like, why would they do that? That's silly. And then certainly no one thought pitchers were doing it because it was, you know, why would you want to do that if you were a pitcher? But, um, you know, toward the end of my career, I was more about, you know, really questioning. My biggest thing was how, how much longer do I want to do this? You know, I had a young family, I'd won a hundred games. I pitched 10 years in the big leagues. And, you know, what was my carrot? Uh, that's what I was really worried about. And, um, that's what led me to hang him up after 98.
0: Well, on that 98 team though, I just have to ask because rooting for that 98 team was a very young me. Uh, you guys, I, I don't mean to be cruel. You guys made me very sad. The twins made me. <laughs> is there, is there, we is made a, ourselves is sad. It's a real tough <laughs> go. Well, my with that though, what is the role of a veteran on a team that you know isn't going to make the playoffs? Where do you find joy mm-hmm. in the job on those, on those twins teams that were four years away from competing? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. Well, I we had other veterans, Terry Steinbach, who's a great player and dear friend. Uh, we had fun and young, I took young Latroy Hawkins under my wing. Um, you know, I respectfully called him Satchel, uh, out of respect for Satchel Page, and he called me Mr. Tukes and there was no, I mean, talking about that now, you know, the context of that is definitely not, uh, racial or in any way it was out of respect. And, um, uh, and he went on and had an incredible career and i think he mentioned my name on a episode of uh MLB network about the impact that i had on him and that's what that was about that was about teaching others uh how to be big leaguers uh helping them you know just grind it out and and learn about major league baseball while enjoying you know uh, that status with other veterans like Terry Steinbach and Ron Coomer and, you know, some of the others. So, uh, yeah, it was, um, you know, we did definitely didn't win, but we had a lot of fun.
0: A lot of, a uh, lot of my early favorite players on those teams. So I, I, I mm. still, I still appreciate them. You had my, probably my first idol, Brad Radke. Um,
1: Oh, Brad Rad, he's the dude, man. He can pitch yeah he was great
0: absolutely was great. kind of an kind of an heir to you, a control guy, Brett,
1: yeah, but he threw harder <laughs> uh but yeah, he didn't say two words and had skinny shoulders, just a really thin built guy but but just a really good pitcher and great competitor too he you know he looked like the meekest guy in the world, but he's a
0: bulldog man he, he was great he was he was uh but so you, you hang it up after the '98 year, in, in something we talked about before we started recording, how long did it take you to come to terms with not being a baseball player anymore? You had you had written it out when we were talking off mic. We were talking about guys who, you know, may, maybe didn't make it, weren't sure what they were gonna do. You had made it. You had pitched a long big league career, but was it still difficult to get over? I am not a baseball player anymore.
1: Absolutely it took years. Um, and I retired on my own. will. you know, there's players terminate their career termination happens because of they they just get cut or released an injury. Um, you know, amateur athletes kind of age out, but, uh, and then there's free choice and I had free choice and, um, and after the first year, um, you know i was great i didn't have to worry about my arm or training i was with the kids but after that i was like who what am i doing you know who am i <laughs> um and you know i finished my undergrad degree and then you know i i started working as a mentor to players and then that led me to getting a master's in sports psych and um you know I think i I got that to help myself with the transition uh because I was really struggling with it and um and so after that, you know it uh took a little bit of time and it's it's a difficult transition when you your identity is one thing for so long, and that's gone uh, uh, a lot of people struggle with that
0: did you? When you retired, did you know that you wanted to get into work, start working with mental skills, or get into the field that you did?
1: No idea. Uh, I knew that I didn't want to coach um, and be gone every day. Um, and no, I had no idea. It just kind of happened that, uh, you know, I heard about the, the program at BU and sports psych and thought, you know, I could carve out a niche here being a former player and, but I never thought that, you know, the field of sports psych would grow as much as it has. I mean, almost every team now has one or more mental skills coaches. Um, you know, it's, it's recognized as a uh, part of player development. And it's really exciting um, to be able to, to, you know, have that access. It's something I wish that was available to me back in the eighties. I would have definitely been using it.
0: Well, in that's kind of that kind of same vein of question, what do you wish you would have known in retrospect before you'd signed? If you could give yourself any sort of pep talk or sit down, what do you know? What do you tell 20 year old Tukes about, you know, his journey through through the minor leagues?
1: Yeah. Uh, Focus on the 200 feet in front of you. Uh, you know that's uh, that's a uh, I think Jack Cornfield or somebody said that that's as far as the beams of a headlight go headlights go and that's all you can control is what's in front of you um because you know the distractions of being an athlete are numerous and especially as a a young major league player uh and that really takes away your focus of of performing so i would say you know, stay focused on the task.
0: I've got a uh, a little rapid fire for you, and then I'll let you get out of mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Favorite major league ballpark.
1: Oh, so as a player? As a player. Busch Stadium.
0: Do you have a favorite minor league ballpark? Mm, I don't no. want to age shame you. I'm not sure <laughs> that many of them are around now. It was kind of like the no. 1992 is when they all they all started showing no, up. No. Do you have a least favorite MLB ballpark? Old Shea Stadium. Old Shea. Best hitter you ever faced? Bonds. That's that's fair. Best pitcher you ever faced? Maddox. Because I thought I could hit him. (laughs) That actually gets into one of my rapid-fire questions. Uh, Do you harbor any ill will towards Greg Maddox for kind of stealing the nickname The Professor? Because that probably would have suited you had Greg Maddox been around.
1: Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, You know, I used to tape, I used to record Maddox's games as scouting reports to pitch from, so he can be whatever he wants to be. He's a great pitcher.
0: Best food city in Major League Baseball?
1: Oh boy, I didn't, I wasn't a big cuisine guy, but I would say, you know, Chicago probably because the day games you could go out and at least have a normal time
0: meal. That makes sense. That makes sense. I hear a lot of Chicago for that question. Uh lastly, is there a nineteen eighties Yankees plane story that's appropriate for this podcast?
1: Oh boy. Uh Yankees, boy that
0: you you're that's a long time ago. Um or if you, if you want to sub in a great plane story from any of your other days, but that that cast of characters that I listed out of the Yankees earlier, the, the Mattingly, yeah. the Ricky. Well I,
1: all I, well, I can tell you what I remember about the Yankee fl- plane trips is that I was not allowed in the back of the plane um, because that's where Rigetti and all those guys were. and uh, Rigetti would always play Frank Sinatra and they would always have a lot of alcohol in the back. Uh, Shirley would drink some hard stuff forget was always drinking beer um and they were having fun with the music going and you know rookies were not allowed in the back and so yeah i i kind of sat up i ended up learning that i was not part of the group uh you know social activities on the plane i learned that quickly <laughs> so yeah don't go to the back of the plane
0: Tukes, this was great uh tell the folks where they can find your book
1: They can go to, uh, Amazon. It's on Amazon. It's also an audio book. Um, I recorded the book myself, so you'll hear my voice and, uh, yeah. And if you have, you can go to my website, uh, I have a couple of audio programs on there for pitchers and hitters for performance and more, uh, material to be coming soon on that.
0: Tux, this was great. Really appreciate you taking the time. You got it, Kyle. Thank you. That was awesome. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. A huge thanks to Bob Tewksbury for taking the time. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, go check out his book. And make sure you subscribe to this feed. Go check out past interviews. Episodes of this show drop every other Tuesday. Uh, Also, make sure you subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com for all your amateur baseball and prospect news. And we'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.